Hi, I'm Jacqueline. And I'm Courtney. And this is Caffeinated Crimes. Welcome to our evening recording session. And by evening, I mean bedtime for me. Um, (laughs) So, you know, if I struggle with my words, which I usually do anyway, but you know, if it's excessive, just know that my brain has gone into nighttime mode and, you know, I don't know. I don't know what's going to come out of my mouth. So so maybe it'll be a great episode or maybe it'll be a terrible episode but Mm. i kind of feel you because um my eye my contacts are kind of sticking to my eyeballs right now so i'm just kind of like good thing this isn't going to be a video for the patreon because (laughs) i'm going to look (laughs) yeah i'm gonna look like very crazy just like this Mm -hmm. i also want to know if you guys have perfect vision and you don't need corrective eyewear do you still struggle to see at the end of the night? Or is this something that only happens to people that, because like by the end of the night, like my vision is so blurry. Like I like cannot focus my eyes. Like it's hard to read it. Is this a contact wearing thing or is this just a, when you get tired, that's what happens. And I don't mean You like, may need a new prescription too, because I had that really, really mm-hmm. bad where like at the end of the day, like I couldn't see. And like Kevin was genuinely concerned that my eyeballs were like broken. Cause like we we travel a lot at night and I'd be mm-hmm. like, I can't read the road signs. Like I can't yeah. read that. And then I got a new prescription and because my eyes were working so hard during the day that wow. I couldn't see at night. And then I got new contacts and it's fixed it. That could be it. You know, it has been a minute since I got a new prescription. I do as of this recording, have an eye doctor appointment in like two weeks. So, so they I'm, might like I'm up looking. your prescription and then it might yeah. help because that fixed my issues. Because Kevin was literally like, something's wrong with your eyes. And I was like, no, it's <laughs> not. They're just tired. I stare at a screen all day. But yeah, when I got the new prescription, like I can see again <laughs> at night. Yeah, I don't have the issue like during the day, but then like at mm-hmm. night, like reading everything is super fuzzy and it's really hard. And so then like watching TV, it. Yeah. it was like hard to see. But yeah, like I would be like the like the exit signs. I'm like, I can't read those. Like my mm-hmm. eyes were so blurry. Yeah. Um, but yeah, so maybe you should. Just try that. that. I also have been thinking about LASIK lately. So LASIK just does sound like a good option, but it's also terrifying because you have to be awake during that. So that's really scary. Yeah. I've also heard too, and this, I I may be just pulling this out of my ass, but like, I thought too, like, like once it happens, you can't have any other changes to your eye. Like if your eyes change again, like you're just screwed, right? Mm -hmm. Like you have to just. Because you can't get it done done while you're pregnant. Mm. because when you're pregnant your eyesight changes so they don't usually perform it on pregnant women because then they're like Mm -hmm. when you're not pregnant then your eyes are going to be messed up but see that's the thing too especially when you're young and you get it done because your eyes Mm. are going to change throughout the years so like my uncle had it and now he has to wear glasses again because he can't see close up yeah see that's what i'm afraid of but i'm also like well i mean if i'm gonna wear them forever anyway i mean i'm at a point like i'm almost 30 i feel like usually your eyes kind of stop changing at that mm-hmm. point until you get to like 50s and then you need like close-up correction you know like i don't know but everyone i've talked to who has gotten it has loved it been very yeah, yeah yeah has been very happy with it so maybe yeah it definitely sounds like a good option at some point yeah let us know if you guys have gotten lasik and have enjoyed it um you know i always love where we go with we have no idea where we're going when we get started and then things just come out we even get to this oh we go to this topic because my eyes are tired that's why (laughs) because my eyes are dry honestly it's the biggest issue (laughs) all that chlorine in your eyeballs are probably just in the sun and you're squinting yeah it's a lot um so we do have one update that should have been an update last week but we both just forgot to include it 
Um, but we do have some updates in the Brianna Taylor case, um, which was several years ago at this point. Um, so prior to this month, Brett Hankinson was the only officer who had been charged with anything related to Brianna's death. And that was only um, for endangering her neighbors. Not not the woman who was shot to death in her apartment, but her, her neighbors who could have been involved like who could have gotten caught in the fire, I guess. I, don't I think know like also they're... because it was an apartment could like go through the walls yeah, into their yeah. apartment kind of thing. Yeah, That's what I was getting at, but it wasn't coming out of, like <laughs> I said, guys, you know, it's who knows. Um, but he was tried and acquitted, acquitted for that. I was reading another word, but okay. Um, so that was prior to this month. So now in August of 2022, Detective Joshua Jaynes um, was previously fired from his job, but he has now been charged with conspiring to impede the federal investigation, falsifying records, and violating Breonna Taylor's constitutional right to be free from unreasonable search and seizure because he falsely claimed to have verified that Breonna's former boyfriend was receiving packages at her house because they did claim that there was like a drug situation going on there. And he was like, yep, I know this for sure. This happened. And that's what allowed them to get the no knock search warrant. Um, but he made that up and he did not verify that that was what was happening. Um, so he has been charged for those crimes. Um, Sergeant Kyle Meany has also been charged because he approved the affidavit knowing it contained false information. So Janes and Meany were also charged with a civil rights violation and lying to the FBI for falsely claiming the police department's SWAT team had requested a no-knock warrant. So that was not true. They did not request that. So he's been charged with that. Um, Detective Kelly Goodlett was also charged with conspiring to falsify the affidavit for the search warrant and hindering the subsequent investigation into the raid. And Meany and Goodlett were still employed um, by the Louisville Metro Police Department at the beginning of August um, at the time that that article was written. Don't know if anything has come from it since then, but basically it's like proven that they like lied and tried to cover it up because they mm -hmm. fucked up with getting that warrant. Um, none of the officers who were actually involved in the raid and in the shooting have been charged because they did not realize that they were there under false pretenses. <laughs> same time like you still chose to shoot someone who was unarmed but yeah yeah at least there have been some charges at this there point. are some charges and you do have to go over to the people like the top top people absolutely and then yeah. hopefully it'll trickle down to like yeah. the bottom bottom people yeah and hopefully like because i'm sure you know a sergeant a detective all that you're probably training people so you're probably mm -hmm. a lot of the issues Yes. In the department as well. For sure. But yes, finally some justice for Brianna Taylor. Slowly getting there. Let's hope. Yeah. It happens. Been too too damn long. Mm. In the words of our Lord and Savior Lizzo, it's about damn time. <laughs> and that's what you get with an evening recording, guys. <laughs> <laughs> um I just had to lighten the mood a little bit <laughs> before we get into this deep, dark case. <sighs> so yeah, this one is, oh, yeah, the doozy. Our sources for this week is a book called Picking Cotton, Our Memoir of Injustice and Redemption, um, as well as a PBS.org article. 
So 22-year-old Jennifer Thompson was a student at Elon University and a part-time aerobics aerobics instructor in Burlington, North Carolina in 1984. So she lived in an apartment off campus and walked the three miles to and from school every day. Um, Her boyfriend, Paul, was from Burlington, um, but he was attending business school at UNC Chapel Hill, which is about 45 minutes away. So Jennifer was from Winston-Salem, North Carolina, which is also about 45 minutes away from Burlington. And most of the students at Elon went home for the summer, but Jennifer decided to stay and attend summer classes in 1984. And also because Paul would be home from school for the summer as well. So she's like, I'm just going to stay here Mm because I can attend some more classes, get done early, and I get to see my boyfriend. It's a win-win. Exactly. Um, And they did plan on getting married soon after they finished school. So on July 28th, 1984, um, this was a Saturday, Jennifer taught aerobics in the morning and then stayed at the gym to lift weights and work the sales desk for a while. And when she got off work, she went window shopping with Paul and they had lunch and went back to her apartment. So it was very hot outside. So they took a nap in her apartment because there was air conditioning and they're like, it's just too, some of those summer days, it's just too hot Mm -hmm. to even think about going outside. Yeah. Um, I've had a few of those these summer where it's like 9 a.m. And I'm like, I'm going to sit on my porch and read. And I go immediately in 10 minutes (laughs) later because I'm like, it's hot. (laughs) No, I'm already sweating too much. I'm going to sit inside by this AC. Yeah. So that evening they went to play tennis at the country club where Paul's family belonged and then went to the China Inn buffet after. So they went to a friend's party, but Jennifer had a headache. So they left early and went back to her apartment. She fell asleep and Paul left around 11 p.m. And at around 3 a.m., Jennifer woke up and heard the sounds of feet inside her apartment. So she pulled her sheets up around her neck and then felt something touching her. When she opened her eyes, she could make out, like, the top of someone's head crouching next to her bed, which is literally what nightmares are made of. Like, Mm -hmm. terrifying. The biggest fear. So the man pressed a knife to her neck and said to shut up or he would cut her. Um, He pinned her arms over her head and said he would kill her if she screamed. So Jennifer thought she was just like being robbed. And she told the man, like, you don't have to hurt me. Like, take all my credit cards, take my car keys. I'm not going to call the police. Just take what you want and just please Mm -hmm. get out. Um, But he told her he already had her $10 and that he didn't want her fucking money, which was a quote. I didn't just throw the F word in there for no reason. (laughs) So Courtney um, just really wants to drive home that point. (laughs) Yeah. So we do want to issue a trigger warning here. We are about to discuss rape. Um, So he did pull off her underwear and raped her both orally and vaginally. Um, During the rape, he said to her, I know all about you, Jennifer. You're from Winston-Salem. They burned witches there. You're a witch. We're going to have a good time tonight. So Jennifer was from Winston-Salem. He did have that correct. But she realized that he was likely thinking of Salem, Massachusetts when talking about witches, which, in case you guys did not know, is not the same Salem. (laughs) Two very different states. different places. (laughs) Um, He also said, your man is overseas in Germany, but it was actually Jennifer's brother that was overseas, not her boyfriend. Um, But clearly this man did know things about her. Like, it might be a little wrong, Mm -hmm. But he still did know things. Yeah. Um, He told her that he knew she wore glasses, so she wouldn't be able to see him. But Jennifer was actually nearsighted, so she was able to see his face perfectly since it was so close to her. Um, And she tried to memorize, like, all the details of his face that she could describe him to police. And she remembered that he smelled strongly of cigarettes and was wearing white knit gloves. 
He talked to her like they were lovers, kind of like this was a consensual encounter, even though it was not. So she was like, I'm going to try to use this to my advantage and asked him if he could put the knife outside because she was really afraid of knives and she couldn't relax if those were there. Um, so she planned on sprinting for the back door as soon as he stepped outside and he made her promise that she wouldn't call the police. Um, but he quickly tossed the knife out on the front door and was back inside before she could make a run for it. But he like did comply with her request, which is like mm-hmm. kind of strange. <laughs> like, yeah, for sure. So the rapist picked up a picture of Jennifer wearing a bathing suit and asked if he could keep it. And she said yes. And he put it in his back pocket. So Jennifer asked him if he wanted something to drink. And he said yes. So she went into the kitchen and just started making like a bunch of noise to make it sound like she was preparing a drink. Um, And she saw that the man had gone through her purse before he came into her bedroom and her ID was out. So while the man was in the other room waiting for a drink, Jennifer made a run for her back door. Um, he did follow her outside. So she started banging on neighbors' doors as she was running and just like trying to find somebody who would let her in, just like somebody could help her. Mm-hmm. Um, she saw a nearby house with a light on, and the woman inside recognized her from the college and let her in. And she could actually see her rapist outside circling the house after she got inside, which must be so terrifying for Jennifer and like the woman who let her in because you're just yeah. like, Oh boy. What did I just get myself into when? Yeah. So Jennifer did faint. Um, but she did come to like in the ambulance. Um, she didn't recognize the clothes she was wearing. So she assumed the neighbors who let her in had just dressed her like in their teenage daughter's clothes to kind of help her out and just like Mm So at the hospital, the doctor was clearly irritated at having to come in in the middle of the night and didn't treat Jennifer with any empathy. Um, The rape kit was invasive and traumatizing, as they normally are. Like, it is a hard thing for women to go through after being so traumatized. Um, And they didn't have any nurses trained in sexual assault, like, present. So no one was there who had any training on how to handle a case like this. And the doctor is acting like, ugh you're making me come in in the middle of the night like my life's so hard like Like such an inconvenience that you decided to get raped and now I have to come in and like oversee this exam where no one is trained in how to like do it appropriately and so they're just like checking off the boxes but they're not like treating her like a sexual assault victim you know Mm -hmm. well at the hospital Jennifer learned from police that another woman had been raped by a black man that night and they believed it was the same man Jennifer's sister did meet her at the police station in the morning and they contacted their parents. Um, So police recorded Jennifer's statement with her boyfriend, Paul, present. And then she spent one and a half hours with a sketch artist describing the man who had raped her. He was a black man in his late 20s and about six feet tall. So when the sketch was finished, she didn't think it was perfect, but she thought it was close enough that like it would do basically. Mm -hmm. Um, And she found out the other victim hadn't been able to describe the man who raped her at all. So the police asked her if she'd been given plan B or penicillin at the hospital, and she said no. And it's very common practice to give both of these to rape victims because it can prevent pregnancy and STDs that you are very exposed to after being raped. So should be part of any standard rape kit, like appalling that it wasn't. So they took her to another hospital to have another rape kit done, which obviously increased the amount of trauma Jennifer had to go through because you're raped you have a rape kit then you have to have another rape kit because they fucked up the first rape kit like it's Mm -hmm. just 
trauma on trauma on trauma. <laughs> and this is all like one night still. Like she still has not like gone to sleep. <laughs> like Yeah. So the sketch of the rapist was released to the media and Jennifer was taken back to her apartment by the police. So they noticed the broken light outside and that the door was swollen, which they believed like allowed the rapist to easily pry it open. Um, the police collected evidence, including the photos and documents that the rapist left in the kitchen so they could test for prints, um, as well as a piece of dark foam rubber on the floor. They believed the rubber had come from the rapist's shoes. And when they were finished, Jennifer went back to Paul's parents' house with him because she didn't want to sleep alone in her apartment, which is completely <laughs> understandable. I mean, I would not want to be alone in the apartment probably ever again. Um she was finally able to shower, but then she had to sleep in Paul's sister's room because his mother wouldn't let them sleep in the same room. Which I just thought was so, like, like are you serious right now? Like, I know it's the 80s, but it's like, your son's girlfriend was just raped and you're like, can't sleep in the same room because you might be getting innocent. She's not having sex with anyone tonight, lady. I, I promise mean, you that. We say it's just the 80s, but I know parents these days who would not allow, like... True. Like, I, I mean, there was, like, one TikTok girl I followed who was in a long-distance relationship, and her and her boyfriend, as adults, had to sleep in separate rooms, like, <laughs> in the parents' house. So, you know, it's, like, it doesn't surprise me at all. Just, like, in this situation, because it's, like, obviously the reason they don't allow it is because you don't want them having sex under your roof. But I'm, like, clearly she is not going to have sex with her boyfriend tonight. Like, it is absurd to think that that's something that yeah. you have to fear. And you're, like, no, you need to go to sleep away from the person who's trying to comfort or you or like what will the neighbors think if yeah. they know they slept in the same room yeah it's it's old school thinking but yeah i feel like i know so many people who <laughs> it's yeah. still that way <laughs> um so the next day paul drove jennifer up to grandfather mountain where her mom was staying while attending college nearby um she was obviously traumatized didn't want to be alone and had trouble sleeping and a few days later she received a call from the burlington police department to come in and look at a photo lineup so the photos of several black men were on the same page after studying it for maybe five minutes jennifer identified a man named ronald cotton as her rapist at first, she said she thought he was the guy, and when police asked if she was sure, she said she was positive, and then she, she asked if she did okay, and the detective said she did great. Um, then she had to come in and do an in-person lineup that consisted of seven black men. They were asked to repeat some of the phrases that the man that raped Jennifer said during the rape, and she said it was either number four or number five, and asked them to repeat the phrases. After they did, she identified number five as the man who raped her, and the detective told her that she'd picked the same man in both the photo lineup and the in-person lineup, a man named Ronald Cotton. So Ronald Cotton was 22 years old and lived in Glen Raven, which is a part of Alamance County, North Carolina. Um, he had grown up in a three-bedroom house with his mom, five sisters, and two brothers. So that's a lot of people with not a lot of bedrooms. Um, <laughs> Very crowded. Yeah, he also had six more half-siblings on his dad's side and would see his dad often, even though he didn't live with him. And as a boy, Ronald wanted to be a police officer when he grew up, and he also enjoyed following his older siblings around and taking care of his younger siblings. Their favorite place to play was in the woods, where they would look for muscadines and play on a rope swing near the pond before going swimming. And in the summer of 1984, he was a busboy at Summer Seafood, which was close to Jennifer's apartment. And his manager called the police when he saw the composite drawing and said it looked like Ronald. And another witness also reported seeing Ronald riding his bike near Jennifer's apartment on the 28th wearing white gloves. 
Also, when he was 16, Ronald liked a white girl named Evie, and they would often, like, flirt with each other and kind of hang out, and so he thought that she liked him, too, and so one night he snuck into her bedroom after drinking, and her mom caught him, and he was charged with breaking and entering with intent to rape. His court-appointed attorney told him he was looking at 50 to 95 years in prison, um, but that he could take a plea deal for three years and get out sooner for good behavior. So while talking to his attorney, Ronald's like, look, like, I didn't do anything. I just snuck in to see this girl. Like, we're friends. Like, we've been flirting. Like, I didn't hurt her. And it wasn't, like, breaking and entering. Like, I snuck into my friend's room, you know? Yeah. Um, but his attorney's like, doesn't really matter. Like, it's your word against her word. And, like, her parents are really mad. So it doesn't really matter if you did anything or not. Um, You're going to be charged with something. So you should take this deal instead of going to trial where you could be in prison for possibly the rest of your life. Um, so Ronald felt like he really had no choice. So he did plead guilty and ended up serving 18 months. Um, he also got in trouble with the law a few more times after that and had just gotten out of prison in February of 1984 for another breaking and entering charge. So he is having some, some legal issues here. Mm -hmm. On August 1st, 1984, Ronald returned at around 11 AM to the house that he was living in with his mom and her boyfriend. And his mom told him the police had been there with a warrant and had taken some of his shoes, his sister's shoes, and a flashlight. So they also left a description of the crime and a sketch of the suspect and told his mom that Ronald needed to come in for questioning. So he borrowed his sister's car and drove himself to the police station. The police searched him and confiscated a utility knife that he always kept on him and logged it into evidence, even though it didn't match the knife that Jennifer had described, like, was completely different from the knife, but they're like, oh, you have a weapon on you, so we're going to take it. Mm -hmm. um, and he was arrested for the rape of Jennifer Thompson based solely on her identification of him in the lineup. So Ronald waived his Miranda rights and said that he didn't need an attorney because he was innocent and he just wanted to clear up this misunderstanding. Like, he's like, no, like, I'll talk to you. I didn't do anything. So I'm good. I don't need an attorney, which as we always say, you always need an attorney. I don't care what the charge is. I don't care what you did or did not do. Get an attorney. And that is so sad in um, like so many cases where it's like, I don't need this because the evidence is going to prove I'm innocent because I am innocent. <laughs> mm hmm. And then, you know, it's it, it backfires, yeah. unfortunately. So detectives asked him where he was on Saturday night, and he said he had been drinking beer and listening to music with his brother, and then they walked to his friend's house where they had some more to drink. He said that they left there around 10 p.m. and went back to his brother's house, and then they went to a club after that and left there around 2.30 a.m., um, he then took a few friends home in another friend's car, and then that friend dropped him off at home, and he finally went to sleep around 4 a.m. So he's like, we're just out drinking with friends, but here mm -hmm. are the list of places that I went, the people that I saw. Here's all. Here's my whole alibi. Here's everyone I was with. So Ronald did notice that the detective took notes, but he did not record the interview. So the detective showed Ronald the shoes that were taken from his house and said that a piece of the sole was found in Jennifer's apartment. And Ronald's like, look, like my shoes are just falling apart because I can't afford to replace them. <laughs> like you're saying yeah. that because my shoes have pieces missing, that is for sure the same piece. And he's like, it's just my shoes are just falling apart because I don't have the money to get new shoes. Mm hmm. So Ronald's mom came to visit him in jail and he told her about the police interview and she got really upset with him and told him that he had gotten his days mixed up because she remembered him sleeping at home on Saturday night. And she's like, your sisters remember seeing you too. Like we talked about it. And 
We all remember seeing you sleeping that night. So we know it wasn't you, but then Ronald started to panic because he's like, I got my days mixed up and now my alibi is not going to hold up. And the police are going to think that I intentionally lied to them. He's like, I, mm-hmm. I got my Friday night and my Saturday night, or it was like a different weekend that he got confused, you know? Yeah. Um, which could happen to any of us. Like, can't tell you exactly what I was doing when, you know? Yeah. So while in jail awaiting trial, Ronald was allowed out of his cell on Saturdays for church and Sundays for visitation. He had always really enjoyed music and singing, so he was really glad to be able to like sing during the church services. Um, and while he was there, he talked to his cellmate Theodore about what he was in for and that he was wrongfully charged. So Theodore told police that Ronald was talking in his sleep and saying the same phrases that he had supposedly said while raping Jennifer. Um which Ronald had told him specifically about because he's like, this is the lineup I had to do and this is what I had Mm -hmm. to say and, you know, all this. Um, So Ronald is assuming that Theodore is like just trying to get a deal for his own charges. And he's like, oh, if I rat him out, then I'll get something for myself. So the woman who had been raped after Jennifer Thompson was named Mary Reynolds. So she was older than Jennifer and she had been slapped and bitten during her rape as well. Her rapist also pointed a flashlight in her face so that she couldn't see him. So Ronald was brought out of his cell to stand in a lineup for Mary Reynolds, but she identified a different man as the man who raped her. So the person that she identified was not a real suspect and was just like someone they brought in to help out with the lineup because he looked similar. Yeah. So Ronald was charged. You know how they'll put like detectives in? Yeah. (laughs) And so the detective's standing there like, I'm not even in this lineup. (laughs) Um, Wait a minute. (laughs) I'm not the suspect here. So Ronald was charged with first-degree rape, first-degree sexual assault, first-degree offense, and first-degree breaking and entering for Jennifer's rape. His bond was originally set at $150,000, but Jennifer testified about the details of her rape during the first hearing, and then his bond was increased for each individual charge, bringing it to a total of $450,000, so he had no hope of getting out on bail now. Um, A probable cause hearing was held on August 28th, And since Mary Reynolds couldn't correctly identify Ronald, police told Jennifer it was up to her to make sure he was convicted. Because they're like, look, clearly she got it wrong. Like, Mm -hmm. you know, it was the same guy. We know who it was. So you have to make sure that this man goes behind bars for what he did to both of you. How much pressure that's like, geez, okay. (sighs) So Ronald was arraigned in November and pleaded not guilty. And the trial started on January 7th, 1985. So Jennifer had gone back home to Winston-Salem for the holiday break from school, but she had to return to Burlington before the spring semester started in order to attend her rape trial. And her parents told her they would attend when they could, but they were busy because her mom was in school and her dad had business meetings that he couldn't miss. Which I'm like, really? There's no way you can arrange your schedule here for your daughter's rape trial. Yeah, there's no way. Your daughter in college, too. Like, sure, she's an adult, but it's like... She's still like, really? Like, this was an example of the 80s, and it gets worse Ooh. as we go on. Oh, of yeah. How, like, people in Jennifer's life talk to her about being raped, mm-hmm. but it's like just one of those things where it's just like people just really did not get it. Mm-hmm. They just did not get it. They did not know how to handle this. They did not know how traumatizing it was. It's just like, whew, how yeah. poorly mishandled it was. All around. Just like, just like not talked about enough, not enough awareness for people. Mm -hmm. And speaking of traumatizing, 
Um, on the stand, Jennifer was asked detailed and invasive questions about her rape, like what she was wearing, what kind of underwear she had. Um, they asked her if she was sleeping in her underwear. Um, and the defense attorney is like, well, did you close your blinds all the way when you were undressing or did you like leave them open so people could look in your window and see you? Hey, I can be walking outside naked. No one should rape me. Exactly. I'm just saying. (laughs) And like insinuating that like, oh, well, you were just sleeping in your underwear. Like you, what? Like you're sleeping in your own bed in your underwear and you're still going to victim blame. Yeah. I'm in my own bed in my own house doing whatever I want. So at the trial, Ronald's family confirmed his second alibi, um, that he was at home watching TV that night. But of course, the fact that he had originally given a different alibi was mentioned because he did get the dates confused. The detectives did testify that the piece of rubber found in Jennifer's apartment matched the shoes found at Ronald's house, but many types of shoes have that same rubber. So they're like, yes, these are the same type of rubber, but also a million other shoes in the world have the same type of rubber. So there was no physical evidence that put Ronald in Jennifer's apartment. So the defense tried to have a memory expert testify about the problems with eyewitness testimony, but the judge would not allow it. The judge also wouldn't allow the defense to bring up the fact that Police were positive the same man had raped both Jennifer and Mary, but Mary had picked out a different man as her rapist. So they're not allowed to mention that at all. Mm -hmm. So the district attorney did offer Ronald a plea deal, but he declined because he's like, nope, that did not work out for me last time. Like, I'm not (laughs) not doing this again. Mm -mm. Yeah. And on January 18th, Ronald Cotton was found guilty on all charges and sentenced to life in prison plus 50 years. So Jennifer continued to struggle in the aftermath of her rape. So she continued living in Chapel Hill and driving back and forth for classes because she didn't want to live in Burlington anymore. And she and Paul had originally planned to stay in Burlington after getting married. But now they started fighting about this because like, she's like, I want to get out of here. I don't want to be constantly reminded of what happened to me. Mm -hmm. And her relationship with Paul became strained because of the trauma that she endured during the rape. Um, she would get upset by like things in movies. So like his friends would be over like watching a movie and something. She's like, can we, can we turn this off? Like, I don't, I can't really handle what's happening. Um, but he just like was not understanding and like didn't support her and just like, no, sorry, that's what they're going to do. And just wasn't again, back to no understanding of rape and trauma and yeah. Ending gets worse. Um, so once he even got frustrated with her and asked her why she didn't fight back when she was raped. And then, and then if he thought it couldn't get any worse, then he asked her if she had actually liked it. A man breaks into your apartment with a knife and starts raping you. And you're like, why didn't you fight back harder? Did you like it? Like, Mm -hmm. no. Like, are you, are you, are you, are you really serious right now, sir, Paul? Are are you serious? Like you're, you're jealous because someone raped your girlfriend and you think she can only hope. That Paul looks back and is like, I fucked up. I <laughs> I hope he apologizes hope so. so much to Jennifer mm. and being like, I shouldn't have handled that that way. <laughs> yeah. So somehow they did stay together at the time. We'll get into their relationship later. But so when Ronald Cotton arrived at the prison, he was fingerprinted, had his photo taken. They sprayed him with disinfectant upon arrival. Just just so, like, demeaning and Mm -hmm. demoralizing. Is that the right word? Anyway. So the other inmates yelled stuff like fresh meat or hey, pretty boy. And just really the typical 
prison experience yeah. that you would expect. Um, they're like, I got something for you. Like he was just harassed. Um, he did go through an evaluation period where he had to take different tests for them to assess his skills and his education level so they could assign a work detail. So Ronald told his caseworker that he wanted to work in the kitchen because he could eat his meals alone away from the other inmates. And he also had experience working in kitchens before going to prison. So he also started going to the gym every day and working in the kitchen where he was sweeping and mopping for 40 cents a day from 4 a.m. to 2 p.m. So any money that he earned went, in, went into his commissary account and $30 was the most that you could withdraw at one time. Um, so they're just super strict about monitoring the very, very little money that you do make. Mm-hmm. Um, Ronald was sexually harassed a lot in prison. Um, he did get into a few fights, usually like trying to stand his ground when other men were harassing him because he's like, I learned early on that like fighting is the only way that you can protect yourself. And like, if they think that you're not going to fight back, like they're going to come at you harder. So like, I have to like stand up for myself. And so I'm going to get into these fights and get into trouble. And that's what's going to happen. Yeah. So one day a new inmate arrived at the prison and Ronald thought he looked just like the sketch of the man that had raped Jennifer and Mary. So Ronald asked the man where he was from and he said Burlington. So Ronald later learned that this man was also in for rape and his name was Bobby Leon Poole. So Poole started working in the kitchen as well and the guards often got him and Ronald mixed up like they kept calling them each other's names and Mm -hmm. Ronald was becoming more and more certain that Poole was the man responsible for the rape that he had been convicted of. Um, He started writing letters to his attorneys, asking for updates on his appeals. Then he started writing to TV stations and news organizations. And he's like, look, like I was wrongfully convicted. Like, I think I know who did this. Can someone please take interest and help me in this situation? And another inmate told Ronald at one point that Poole had confessed to him that he had committed the rapes that Ronald was in prison for. And so Ronald was able to get a photo of Bobby Poole and mail it to his attorneys to show him how much he resembled the sketch and that he really believed this was the right guy. And Ronald's mom suffered a stroke while he was in prison and became temporarily paralyzed and blind. She visited when she could before that, but visits became more difficult after the stroke. I mean, you're temporarily like paralyzed and blind. Like that's very hard to be able to visit on, especially like going for like prison visits. I'm, from what I've heard, they just kind of like you, it's not as easy as they, they make it very difficult for you, basically. Yeah, <laughs> um, definitely. So Ronald's dad also visited him in prison and Ronald had confessed to his dad that he thought about killing Poole because he was sure he committed the rapes that landed him in prison. And he was like already here. I'm like, might as well like do it. I'm in here for a long time. Like there's that kind of like prison mentality, especially people who are in there for like life and they're never getting out and they're like well what does it matter what's one more um yeah i think we've all heard of prison justice so he'd even made a weapon before this conversation with his dad but his dad convinced him like you were innocent um and if you killed someone you really would belong in prison Uh, like you need to just stay strong maintain your innocence you know like if you're what was that I just snorted because I was trying to not laugh. Um, <laughs> so I apologize if my audio has been shit so far this episode <laughs> because Is I just your mic not plugged in. My mic was backwards. <laughs> you know, I thought you sounded weird, <laughs> but 
I was like, oh, it's probably just my headphones. So, um, yeah, you sound a lot clearer now. Yeah. So if I was a little farther away for the first half of this episode, I do apologize because my mic was backwards. How many episodes have we recorded at this point? I'm so scared. I guess we'll see how bad the audio is. And if this is the last episode that we're going to re-record tomorrow. Well, you know what? The second half is going to be great. So if it is that bad, we just have to record the first half again. So, and we only have to record my first half again. We can kind of, you know what I mean? That's true. That's true. Um, We'll figure it out. Yeah. You do sound a lot better now because you were talking and I was like, she sounds kind of like weird. And then I was like gaslighting myself into being like, no, she doesn't sound weird, but... (laughs) Oh, this is what happens when you record after my bedtime i just <laughs> can't function also um, i really hope well obviously you did the snort that i made <laughs> like, i heard it i'll leave it i'm gonna leave it so hard to edit. well i saw you like moving your mic around and like kind of laughing so i stopped looking at you because i was like i'm gonna laugh yeah like I i'm gonna ignore laughing. what she's doing and i'm trying to talk about how ronald is innocent and not to kill someone Ooh. in prison <laughs> Oh, okay. Well, we'll see how the rest of this episode goes. Okay. So um, what we were saying was that Ronald's dad was visiting him and is basically convincing him not to kill Poole in prison because he's like, look, you are innocent. You're maintaining your innocence. Um, but if you're killing someone, you do belong in jail. So you mm-hmm. can't do that. Ronald agrees, throws away the weapon. Like, what a powerful moment between them, you know? Mm-hmm. So in 1987, which is his second year in prison, Ronald Cotton received word that the Supreme Court in North Carolina had overturned his conviction and he would be sent back to Burlington to prepare for a new trial. Um, So they had agreed to allow the evidence from Mary Reynolds' rape and he went back to the local jail in February, which should make it easier for his family to visit. At this time, two years after the initial trial... Mary Reynolds came forward and identified Ronald Cotton as the man who had raped her. So she's claiming like she recognized him all along, but she was too afraid to say anything. Um, So Ronald Cotton is now charged with the rape of Mary Reynolds and will be going to trial for both rapes at the same time. There were no people of color on the jury. There had been four black potential jurors, but they were all dismissed by the prosecution. Um, I'm sure for (laughs) bullshit reasons. Mm Mm-hmm. And the defense filed a motion for a mistrial because Ronald Cotton could not be fairly tried by a jury of his peers. There's not a single black person on the jury, but the judge denied this motion and the trial went forward. So Mary Reynolds testified that she was asleep when someone broke in and shined a flashlight in her face. She screamed and the man went out the back door. She then saw that everything had been thrown around in her bedroom. So the man had clearly been in there for some time before he woke her up, which again, is very similar to Jennifer's Mm -hmm. case where he'd been through stuff before he came into her room. She looked outside and saw the man through the open window taunting her. So Mary screamed and ran out to her phone to call her father, but the line went dead. So the man then broke in through the front door and took Mary to her bedroom, held a pillow over her mouth and raped her both orally and vaginally. She told him her husband was coming, but the man was like, you don't have a husband which was true. Like she was just saying it to try and mm-hmm. get him to leave. But, and, and like Jennifer is like, he knew things about her. Mm-hmm. So Mary's original description to police said that her rapist was around five, nine. Now she said he was between five, nine and six foot, but Ronald Cotton was six, four, which is a pretty big 
discrepancy yeah. if you see someone like even if like because kevin's around five nine and i think mm-hmm. andrew is around six six four. three yeah. six four like you're gonna tell the height difference in them like <laughs> yeah like i i i'm bad with heights so like i understand being like oh five nine when they were really like 5'11 or you know 5'6 yeah like that kind of but 5'9 to 6'4 is a big jump like that's yeah not the same at all so Mary claimed that she was afraid looking at seven black men during the police lineup and that's why she picked a different man than the one who really raped her again she never mentioned this until Cotton's second trial for the rape of Jennifer Thompson so she never said like I'm scared I'm just picking a random person like none of that like not even after he was convicted the first time and sent away to life in prison yeah. at that point you didn't say okay now i can relax because he's put away and now i can say nope that didn't mm-hmm. come up until until the second trial okay yeah so ronald's defense presented bobby Poole to the judge to demonstrate the likeness to the original sketch the defense had to convince the judge that Poole was a potential suspect and should therefore be allowed to testify before the jury so Poole had pled guilty to burglary and raping other victims and was currently in prison for those crimes. Um, and on April 21st, 1985, less than a year after Jennifer and Mary's rapes, Poole was arrested for rape at the same apartment complex where Jennifer had lived. Burlington police actually shot Poole while he was fleeing after that rape. So he had been in this same like complex. So many pieces of evidence here. Yeah. So the defense also argued that the blood type found at Mary's apartment was type A and Bobby Poole's blood was type A, but Ronald Cotton had O positive blood and your blood just does not change. Mm, Nope. It will never change. So Poole obviously denies the rape of Jennifer and Mary while on stand in front of the judge. Um, Despite the same MO, the same apartment complex, the physical, physical similarities between Poole and Cotton, again, remember in prison, Guards mm-hmm. could not tell them apart who were spending every single day with them. Yeah. Um, and Poole's matching blood type. The judge ruled that the evidence wasn't strong enough to be presented to the jury, even though we have all this. Mm-hmm. He's like, nope, nope. Jury doesn't doesn't need to hear all that. Not not relevant. Yeah. So the defense also tried to have another in- inmate testify that Poole had confessed the rape of Jennifer and Mary to him, but the judge ruled it inadmissible as well. So the judge is just like, no, we can't have any of this in here, which the defense, their whole point in a trial is to provide reasonable doubt. Mm-hmm. And you have a silver platter of yeah. reasonable doubt that the judge just will not let you present. Mm-hmm. So Jennifer and Mary were both present during Poole's questioning, but the jury was not allowed to hear his testimony. Ronald's previous boss testified that Ronald would flirt with the waitresses and tell dirty jokes, which I feel like anyone who's worked in a restaurant, like, mm-hmm. isn't that just kind of what happens? Yeah. Like, anyone like who's my worked dad, anywhere. I mean, that too, but like, my dad worked in restaurants for 15 years, and like, the jokes like he tells that came from them, like, yeah, and they're so dirty. Mm-hmm. <laughs> it's just like... I don't think that necessarily like telling dirty jokes in your workplace when you're trying to relieve stress is means you're a rapist. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. They're not the same thing. (laughs) Yeah. He also said Ronald would wear white gloves when riding his bike. So Ronald Cotton was found guilty a second time for the rape of Jennifer Thompson. And this time was also found guilty for the rape of Mary Reynolds. Again, absolutely no evidence. 
um, mostly just eyewitness testimony. Um, and this was after Mary had identified someone else years before. Um, so this time he's sentenced to two life sentences plus 54 years. And one of the um, other inmates joked, like, when he got back to prison, they're like, man, you're the first person that I ever saw that got a new trial and came back with more time. <laughs> like, Yeah, like, who that is rough. Yeah. Especially when it's like, if the jury could hear everything, yeah. like, man. <sighs> so Ronald went back to prison and was working in the kitchen. Um, he also started drawing, and he got pretty good at it. So other inmates would actually give him money for drawing on letters and envelopes that they were going to be sending home to their families. And Ronald joined the choir and was able to find some peace in singing. And in 1988, Ronald was transferred to another prison. So Bobby Poole had also been sent to that prison. So also how hard it must be to know you're innocent and see the likely man who did it mm-hmm. everywhere you go. Yeah. Um, at least that means in prison and not out somewhere, but still. Yeah. Like but having like, to have it like I don't in your face. Here. Yeah. Mm-hmm. It was further away from Burlington. So his family isn't able to visit as easily. Um, and this prison was on a farm. So Ronald started working in the cannery. There was no choir established at this prison, so Ronald started boxing for an outlet. In August of 1990, Ronald received word that the judge had committed a reversible error for not allowing the Bobby Poole testimony in his last trial, but the NC Supreme Court upheld his conviction. So they're like, even though this huge error was made, we don't think it would have, like, affected the decision. And I'm like, are you kidding me? Yeah, like, who is reading this and being like, "Mm, yep, not still not relevant like yeah you should have allowed this in but it wouldn't have changed anything what you have a whole suspect suspect. who fits it more perfectly than your defendant on trial (sighs) and you're like i don't think it would have changed the jury's opinion how it would have and somehow it was upheld again in 1991 So, in the September of 1992, Ronald was informed that Richard Rosen, who's an attorney and law professor at UNC Chapel Hill, was looking into his case. Unfortunately, soon after that, Ronald was transferred to a prison in Tennessee because of overcrowding in North Carolina prisons. So, again, this is so devastating for Ronald because now his family cannot make the 11-hour drive that it is now to the new prison. Like, that's for what two hours or an hour to see him that's it's there's no way you can make that work and in 1994 his father had a stroke and had to move into a rest home so his parents were not even healthy enough and they Mm -hmm. don't have the financial means to be able to travel so they could probably not even travel an hour away let alone 11 hours to a different state this also meant he wouldn't be able to receive visits from his new attorneys either So here he started working in the laundry room that's in the new prison in Tennessee. And Ronald started hearing about DNA during OJ Simpson's trial and asked his new attorney about it. So Rosen agreed to file a motion asking for DNA evidence to be tested. And his attorneys also got signed affidavits from white waitresses at summer seafood saying that Ronald never harassed them, which was contradicting what his previous boss said during his last trial. So We said how his boss was like, he was flirting with the waitresses and telling dirty jokes. And they're like, no, he was being like every other guy that worked here. Yeah. They're like, it wasn't anything like we weren't offended by it. It wasn't a big deal. Yeah. 
So his attorneys were also requesting Bobby Poole's information to be presented in addition to the request to test the DNA evidence. So meanwhile, Paul and Jennifer broke up a month after the trial. I don't think this is shocking to anyone, Mm -mm. especially after he asked her if she liked the rape. I mean, this Mm. it was doomed from they were never going to. Yeah. Uh, You can't come back from something like that. Mm -mm. (laughs) You can't. So one of Jennifer's friends from Elon asked her to go to Florida with her for spring break their senior year. While there, Jennifer met a graphic designer from Long Island named Vinny. So they hung out together during spring break, and then he continued to call her when she went back to Burlington. Um, And can I just say how, like, a guy named Vinny from Long Island is the most stereotypical thing in the entire world? I was literally (laughs) about to say that, and then I was like, I'm just going to let Courtney speak. I've inserted myself enough, but yes, that was exactly what I was thinking, too. Yeah. Like, Um, Vinny from Long Island, of course you are. (laughs) Of course you are. I was taking the next sentence to be like, should I say it? I'm going to say it. Um, so they did write letters back and forth, and Vinny even flew out to Burlington to see her. So Jennifer decided to move to Long Island with Vinny after graduation, and after some time there, she did decide she wanted to move back to North Carolina, so Vinny went with her. They bought a house in Winston-Salem, and Jennifer started working at a bank. They did get married, and in 1988, they had triplets named Morgan, Brittany, and Blake. So in March of 1995, Jennifer did receive a call from Burlington Chief of Police saying Ronald Cotton was requesting DNA evidence to be tested and that they needed her to give them a new blood sample because hers had disintegrated. So she's very frustrated because she's like, I am constantly being reminded of this rape. I've had to go through two trials now and now I'm having to give my blood like. But she was positive DNA would prove Ronald Cotton as her rapist once and for all. So she's agreeing to the sample because she's like, I'm ready to put this so far behind me. Mm -hmm. So unfortunately, there was no DNA left behind during Jennifer's rapes. There was nothing to compare Ronald's sample to. However, there was DNA left behind during Mary Reynolds' rape, and it was not a match to Ronald Cotton. So at Ronald's attorney's request, the DNA was also compared to all current North Carolina prison inmates and came back, surprise, as a match to Bobby Leon Poole. So when confronted with this evidence, Poole did confess to raping both Jennifer and Mary. He also had details about both rapes that had never been released to the media. So in June of 1995, Ronald Cotton was called into the warden's office and informed that he was being sent back to North Carolina the next day and that the charges against him were being dropped. Bobby Poole was indicted on July 3rd for the rapes of Mary Reynolds and Jennifer Thompson. So Ronald Cotton moved in with his sister and nephews, and at this point, he started keeping receipts anytime he went anywhere, and he just kept super detailed notes about where he was at all times so that he would always have an alibi in the future. I completely so get it because yeah, like 100%. especially when you got your days mixed up and that was used against you yeah. and so you're like I'm gonna write out minute by minute what I did during exactly. my day. Like any piece of proof that he could have for where he was when he kept. Yeah. Um. So he actually went on Larry King and spoke about being wrongfully convicted. Um. One of his friends helped him get a job working at LabCorp in Burlington, which actually happened to be the company that had tested his DNA evidence. So that was pretty cool. Mm-hmm. And while working at LabCorp, he met another employee named Robin, and he instantly liked her and found out that they had actually met before because she knew his sisters. And she told Ronald that he had always been so polite, and she just knew that he couldn't have raped those women. She's like, I 
I saw you around town. Like I met you before. Like I really knew that that couldn't have been you. Mm -hmm. Um, So they started dating and Robin actually drove him to see his father in the rest home where he was now living. So that was like super important and super special um, to Ronald that she would like take the time to do that for him. So Ronald Cotton was the first person in North Carolina to be exonerated by DNA evidence and actually received a governor's pardon of innocence, which meant that he could receive compensation for all of the years that he was wrongfully imprisoned. Unfortunately, at that time, the amount in North Carolina was only $5,000 per year. Only $5,000 per year. So that's just insane. $5,000 per year? Like... Like even Ugh. even working full-time making minimum wage you're gonna make more than five dollars like yeah. it's just absurd it's absurd um so he did work long hours to make ends meet and he was attending community college in the evenings to finish his ged but he did end up having to drop out to pick up a second job at a golden corral restaurant in the evenings then on december 21st 1996 ronald married robin at her grandmother's house And that night, his father passed away while Ronald and Robin were getting ready to go out for their reception, which is just heartbreaking. Yeah. So Frontline for PBS reached out to Jennifer and wanted to interview her about how eyewitnesses can make mistakes. So she was really hesitant at first because she's like, I don't want to like go on national media and admit to what I did and what happened. Mm -hmm. Um, But she felt really guilty and she really wanted to understand like how she could have been wrong when she was so sure that she had identified the right man. She's like, I thought it was him. Like, how could this happen? I don't understand. So she's like, okay, I'll do it. Um, The show was also going to be interviewing Ronald, so Jennifer only agreed to be on the segment under the condition that she would not have to have any contact with him. So she's Mm -hmm. like, the guilt was just too much for her to handle, and like she was afraid about how he would feel towards her because he just spent 11 years in prison because of her false identifications. And she's like, I don't want some like ambush, you know, like I come on your show and then you ambush me with him and we have to like speak she's like i'm not going to do that so they did agree that they would do their segments separately so um the segment was named what jennifer saw and when jennifer watched it she saw ronald saying how he wondered why jennifer had never contacted him and that he really wanted to see like what she had to say in her in her own words and so this prompted jennifer to contact the detectives on the case and asked to be put in contact with ronald cotton the sex part just made me so mad so i felt like i needed to include it but Her sister, so Jennifer's sister, told her that meeting him was a mistake and that she didn't owe him anything. She also said that he didn't live a right life and that he probably would have ended up in prison anyway. Girl, what? What? People suck. Mm, Wow. So when Ronald was contacted by the detective, Robin said she didn't want Ronald to meet Jennifer, but she did finally agree because it was what Ronald wanted, which I completely understand her hesitancy. She's like, what does this girl have to say to you? Like, she's mm. like, that girl put you in prison for 11 years? Yeah. Mm -mm." So Jennifer Thompson and Ronald Cotton officially met for the first time on April 4th, 1997. So Jennifer told him that if she spent the rest of her life telling him how sorry she was, it would still never be enough. She did ask him if he could forgive her, and Ronald said yes, because he felt like she was truly remorseful for her actions. She asked him about his life in prison, like how he was doing now, like she really wanted to like learn about him. And Ronald said that he believed that God had a plan for him all along and that the truth would eventually come out. 
So later, Jennifer was asked to write a letter in support of increasing the amount of money North Carolina exonerees would receive for wrongful incarceration, and she agreed and wrote a really heartfelt letter about Ronald Cotton. So because Ronald was able to forgive her, Jennifer really wanted to forgive Bobby Poole for raping her. So she wrote to him and asked to arrange a meeting, but he didn't ever respond. So Jennifer then started contacting Ronald every now and then, like when she received media requests, because she's like, I never want to speak to anyone unless like you're aware and like you're involved. Like this isn't just my story to tell. Like I don't want to speak on your Mm -hmm. behalf if you're not comfortable with that so she would contact him anytime she got a media request and this just kind of turned into them talking more often and like catching up on each other's lives and then they slowly started to become friends in august of 1996 they went together to the capitol building in raleigh to see the governor sign a new compensation bill that would give exonerees ten thousand dollars per year that they were wrongfully incarcerated which is still insanely low but okay (laughs) Um, However, this bill would only include the time spent in prison and not the year that Ronald spent in county jail awaiting his trial. So he did have to appeal this decision and then was finally awarded $109,150.69 for the almost 11 years of his life that he was wrongfully imprisoned. He did also owe $5,000 in back pay to his first court-appointed attorney. So with his money, he bought some land and he and Robin had a four bedroom modular home built um, and he started working at a new job in a plant where he could pick up the late shift to earn extra money. Because, again, the amount of money that he was awarded, you're still really far behind at that point in your life because that was 11 years that you would have earned more than that. Yeah. And I mean, you know, you're building your house, too. And it's like that does take up a chunk of the money and like is something you should probably get with that money. But it's like I still got to pay taxes and I still have to eat like I can't just live off of this like yeah um he also found a bar in burlington where he could sing karaoke which he really enjoyed because remember he was always into music and singing so he's starting to find his like creative outlets and you know finding his groove so ronald and robin got pregnant and had a baby girl named raven so bobby Poole died in prison from cancer in october of 1999 and his death left jennifer wondering like what can make someone turn out that way Um, So this led to her volunteering as a home visitor for an organization called Stop Child Abuse Now, where she worked with parents to help them learn new strategies and coping skills because she was like, Bobby was someone's child at some point. And so Mm -hmm. maybe I can like help break this cycle and try to help children before they turn into adults that commit these crimes. So then Jennifer heard Gary Wells, who was a professor from the University of Iowa, speak about memory and eyewitness identification. And for the first time, she understood that anyone could have made the same mistake that she did. Um, So she learned that memory can be contaminated because of the way eyewitness evidence is collected. So Dr. Wells said that eyewitnesses will pick the next best person when the correct person isn't in the lineup and that this is a common error in eyewitness identification. So like, instead of comparing them to the, the image in your brain you're comparing them to each other so you're like yeah okay you know and and oh that's not perfect but that's the closest one so i'll pick that one mm-hmm. so dr wells recommended that police officers do double blind testing so that the officers conducting the lineup don't know who the suspect is so they can't give any verbal or nonverbal cues um, remember during ronald's photo lineup the detectives told jennifer that she did okay after she picked him so like now she believes okay like I got the right person. And of course, mm-hmm. that's going to taint the in-person eyewitness identification because 
that can you're looking that, for yeah. you're looking for the person in the picture not the person in exactly. your memory exactly exactly um and ronald cotton was also the only person who was in both the photo and the physical lineup so again it's like oh well i already picked him out here so of course i'm going to pick him out here too um, so Burlington did become the first city in North Carolina to require sequential lineups where witnesses are shown suspects one at a time instead of all at once. Um, again, to prevent the witnesses from comparing them to each other instead of comparing them to the person who committed the crime. So if you see them one at a time, you're not like, oh, how does one compare to two to compare? Because like, you're focusing too much on looking between yeah. them and picking the best one versus if you look at them individually, it's like a yes, no, yes, no, not like a spectrum you know you can't see yeah. my my hand gestures but i feel like they really make you it can you sense. can feel them you <laughs> feel them <laughs> um and burlington was also the first city in north carolina to require double blind testing so many years after his release, Ronald ran into Mary Reynolds when she was working at the cookie place at the mall. Um, he was actually buying a cookie with his daughter and like didn't even realize that it was her until he like got up to the cash register and was like, oh, this is Mary Reynolds. And mm -hmm. Mary clearly recognized him, but did not acknowledge him or apologize for wrongfully identifying him as the man who had raped her. So she never. It's a tale of him. two different women. Yeah. <laughs> like. So Jennifer Thompson and Ronald Cotton are friends today and actually spend time with each other's families. They continue to speak about wrongful convictions and the mistakes that can happen with eyewitness testimony. Um, if you'll remember at the very beginning where we talked about our sources, we mentioned the memoir Picking Cotton, Our Memoir of Injustice and Redemption, which was written by Jennifer Thompson Canino, Ronald Cotton, and Aaron Tornillo. Um, so so they... I didn't just make a mistake <laughs> and forget. It was intentional. Yes. So I was just waiting for people to be like, we didn't say who the book is by or if people even noticed, honestly. But um, yeah, so it we was wanted intentional. To, we didn't, we didn't <laughs> want to give away the ending um, to this story. So we kind of left the authors out. But they did write this memoir together. Um, so this is why we do have such good information about both sides here. Um, I felt it was really important to tell both of their stories because obviously Jennifer went through an unspeakable trauma multiple mm -hmm. times um, and made a devastating mistake that she has acknowledged many, many times. Um, and Ronald Cotton was equally traumatized in just such a all around horrific scenario. Um, and how amazing that like they can be friends today. Yeah, absolutely. Like, for his part of like, look, I know it was an accident on mm -hmm. your part. Like you weren't targeting me. Like it wasn't yeah. like a vendetta against me. Exactly. Like you just picked the wrong person. Um, But still spending that much time in prison because of that person, yeah. like forgiving them. Um, And also on her part of like how guilty you must feel when you find out you were so wrong and messed someone's life so badly Um, to be able to like get over your I don't even know if it's like pride, but like over yourself mm -hmm. to like talk to them. And like, yeah. obviously that took a bit too. That took this whole documentary and seeing him talk, but like being able to get over that and be like, oh my gosh, you're right. Like I'm, I should talk to you if you want me to like mm -hmm. yeah. opening the door and not also being like, like letting him have like 
being contacted me like I want to talk to you you tell me yes or no not Mm -hmm. just railroading him and being like hey by the way I'm sorry like yeah and and the fact that she did it in a a private manner she wasn't trying to like I'm sure she could have called any number of talk shows on Facebook (laughs) (laughs) guys I'm trying to contact Ronald Cotton um I want to apologize um And, and, and you know they wrote this memoir together so it's like I think that I would hope it's kind of equally everyone had a say in what went in and everything, but it definitely seems like she didn't make the story just about her. You know, like she was mm-hmm. like, I need you to, I need to show your side of the story and I need everyone to know who you were and everyone to know what you went through when I also went through this separate traumatic thing and I caused your traumatic thing, which I'm so sorry for. And, but your story is important too. You know what I mean? Like, mm-hmm. like you are a victim in this scenario that your story should be told um i also so badly want to know two things one where the hell is paul what is he thinking what's right. going on and two does she still talk to her sister yeah like i just could not believe that her sister said that like oh well yeah, he would have gone that's... to prison anyway so to... are you kidding me i that's harsh yeah yeah and mary riddle's like <sighs> and i do feel Mm. she is a victim she was raped very traumatically um but the fact that you can't and her evidence is like what proved it was someone else that you can't even apologize or acknowledge and it's like lady you didn't come forward until the second trial and then you were like oh yeah yeah i picked him too and it just, mm, it feels very different from, which obviously Jennifer wrote this book, so it's her story, so we don't know what mm-hmm. Mary's thoughts on anything are, but yeah. yeah. It is an important story that eyewitness testimony can be so flawed, and, you know, it's it's rough. It's hard. Yeah, absolutely. All right, so um, that is that story that has sort of a happy ending i mean obviously it's a lot of trauma on both sides that you know everyone went through and we're not minimizing that at all um but both of them have been able to make something out of the trauma that they went through Mm -hmm. um so yeah courtney what is your perk of the week so my perk of the week is today why we are recording kind of late (laughs) is that i went to splash country with my family Mm -hmm. so i got to go with my parents um, Kevin went and my sister and her kids went and it was so fun and seeing them, um, apparently Eli woke up this morning at 7am <laughs> going, we're going to splash country, <laughs> like so excited, so excited. And, um, it was just so fun to see him. Like I got to go down one of the slides with him, like in a double tube, which was mm-hmm. also terrifying because my sister was like, don't like hurt my kid. <laughs> and we all know that if something bad's going to happen, it's going to happen with me. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> Basically, I'm like holding on to the tube with one hand and like holding on to his life jacket with the other. And Kevin was like, he was like, you look terrified when you came down. And I was like, I was so scared the tube was was gonna like flip over or he's gonna fly out. I'm gonna traumatize him because he loved it. He went with my dad first and was like obsessed. And I'm Uh like, of course he's gonna go with Aunt Courtney and Aunt Courtney's gonna mess it up and then he's gonna hate it forever and he's gonna hate water for the rest of his life. Like um, but no, he had fun and he he came back and told everyone how much fun it was. Um, but it was just, it was a lot of fun and like seeing them, um, you know, play and then get to do some slides, mm-hmm. you know, as the adults and all that. It was a fun day. Good family day. Yeah. Um, 
Sounds very good. tired. All that chlorine in the sun. <laughs> I think I'm going to sleep Children. well tonight. They, they, yeah, they wore me out. So I know they're <laughs> sleeping good and I'm going to sleep good. Yeah, <laughs> for sure. Um, but yeah, so that is my perk of the week. Jacqueline, what is your perk of the week? Um, so my perk of the week is that this weekend, my best friend of 21 years, Katie, came to visit um, with her three children. Um, so we had a great time. We took the kids to the park. We just hung out outside and kids played in the water table and we grilled out burgers and, you know, just a nice chill weekend. Nothing like super extraordinary, but just being able to hang out together and have a good time. Mm-hmm. And so my baby got to play with other babies and she loves other children and gets so excited. And every human that is not an adult is a baby to her. So she sees the seven-year-old and is like, baby. And he's like, I'm not a baby, <laughs> but she's just like, you're kind of my size. So I think you're a baby. <laughs> yeah. So- you're not tall <laughs> enough. <laughs> yeah. So she, um, she was very excited to be able to interact with other kiddos and yeah I was so glad that I got to see her and see her kids and everyone's getting so grown up so quickly and kids grow up fast like it's crazy <sighs> like when I look at Eli and even Amelia and I'm like who are you like who? Right? like Amelia is like talking and she was obsessed with Kevin at the end it was just like <laughs> Kevin 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 where's Kevin where is Kevin where is he <laughs> So it's just like crazy, like mm-hmm. seeing old pictures of like these little tiny babies. And I it's know. like, who are you? You're going down a slide. Like, what are, who are you? It goes by too quickly. Everyone's getting all grown up and so old and, you know. But yeah, if you want to tell us about how old the children in your life are getting, um, if you want to tell us about your water park adventures, um, Make sure and let us know about the LASIK because I'm super interested in that back to the very beginning. Um, Maybe this is going to be a patchwork episode where I have to re-record some parts because I forgot because I had my mic turned the wrong way because I don't don't know how to podcast. It can't be that bad, right? I mean, that I cursed myself. Yes, we'll see. We'll see. So yeah, if you want to, if you want to tell me I sound like shit and I acknowledge it for that first half of the episode, you can do all those things on Instagram at Caffeinated Crimes Pod. We are on Twitter at Caff Crimes Pod. That's C A F F Crimes Pod. We are on Facebook at Caffeinated Crimes Podcast, or you can email us at Caffeinated Crimes Pod at gmail.com. If you are so inclined and you are willing and able, we do have um, our patreon.com slash caffeinated crimes account where you can pledge between three and $20 a month and receive different perks in all of those um, different tiers. We have ad free episodes and our discord channel and we have monthly Google hangouts and quarterly gifts and pins and stickers and bonus episodes and video episodes and so much fun stuff over there. Um, so check it out and see what kind of cool things we have going on. Maybe we'll add some new things if the a new year coming up here soon. And, you know, I don't know. I think we'll have another special soon. Our summer yeah. special is coming to an end. Next month is the last month yes. that you can all tears get the Google month. We'll hang, hang out. Jacqueline and I never gave like a firm thing, but <laughs> we said summer and I feel like after summer, you're no after September, you're no longer in summer. So yeah, it's gonna summer end counts. there, but September we September counts as summer. That was a hard sentence. Yes. <laughs> yeah, I think I did the same thing where I called September summer. <laughs> Wait, summer? <laughs> summer. Okay. <laughs> Guys, we gotta end this episode. It is very we are late. gonna have we are gonna have another Patreon bonus thing coming up towards fall winter. We already yes. have a little thought in our mind, so please stay tuned and please sign up. 
give us reviews on Apple and on Spotify. Please make them five stars. <laughs> and um, in the meantime, go have a cup of coffee. And don't commit a crime. Thank you.